Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode of the Human Centered Leadership Podcast. This podcast is dedicated to watching and speaking and learning from other leaders out there who are practicing emotional intelligence and witnessing emotional intelligence in everyday their lives. The idea is that other leaders can listen into this podcast and hear all about emotional intelligence. Sometimes these models that we talk about can be seen to be quite ethereal. Well, we're all about pragmatism. What pragmatic skills can you take away that you can implement in your organization, in your team and in your personal life to get better performance, better connectivity and build more trust in your culture? Today's guest is quite a a remarkable individual. Uh, I came across uh, Sal some while ago now on LinkedIn, and I was blown away by his incisive and insightful views on leadership and culture. Sal has a, a really strong um, background in overseeing organizations. Let me just tell you what I mean by that. He has been a member or worked within the Independent Police Complaints uh, Commission. He is currently the chair of the BAME Into Leadership Conference, uh, which is a powerful uh, conference for the FDA trade union, which tends to focus on the higher echelons of leadership across the public sector. Uh, And he's a regional director for London at the Independent Office for Police Conduct. Sal, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I know that you've been a very, very busy person this morning, hence the suit and tie. Do you want to just explain that as well? Thank you, Gil. First of all, thank you very much for having me. I don't take this for granted. It's always a kind of pinch me moment when people are interested in what you have to say. So thanks for having me on today. Um, Why have I got a suit and tie on? I'd like to say it's just to impress you, cool, but that would be a lie. (laughs) That'd be an absolute lie. The reason I've got a suit and tie on is because I've just done some media work. I've been on um, LBC radio and I've done Good Morning Britain this morning. And why was I on these two stations? Um, I was speaking about work that our organisation's done. We published a report yesterday on an Operation Houghton, which is available on our website. And um, it might be something you want to pick up. And it's the report was published because we're making 15 recommendations um, to the Metropolitan Police Service about ways that they can improve their culture. And we had done um, a large series of investigations which spanned a few years and we'd identified what what can be called really canteen culture existing within a number of teams and our report exposes in a really graphic way what that canteen culture actually looks like because it's often described as discriminatory content offensive messages but what we've done is we've actually 
shown and laid bare what that looks like because for the likes of you know women for the likes of people like you and me who come from different cultures and different backgrounds these are things that we are we know and we've been subjected to in different walks of life and any issues around culture in order for policing to be at its most effective you know you need, you need the right culture so that's why I've been busy speaking about this morning. This just goes to prove how real this podcast is. And we had not planned what we were going to talk about. And you literally mentioned just before we jumped on why you'd got a suit and tie on. And here we go. Canteen culture. Canteen culture is a phrase I have not heard about for many a year. It was something that we used to talk about back in the 1980s in the police service. And you're absolutely right. Canteen culture was a bane of my life, uh, having come from a different background. You know, the banter that uh, we had to put up with, some of this, the, the cultural norms that were accepted that in today's uh, era would be completely frowned upon. Um, and canteen culture, for me, is like the heartbeat of an organisation. It feeds into the values of the organisation. And that's why I work so hard with so many organisations and in fact, later on this afternoon, I'm going to see a healthcare provider with 1,200 staff. I'm going to do a cultural audit from the very top to the very bottom of that organisation to see what we can uh, help them to, to move ahead on. But canteen culture is endemic. And it's not just, you know, uh, within the police service. It exists across every single organisation. What are some of the key findings that came out in that report? And, and, and accepting that this is about Metropolitan Police, but actually this could be about any organisation because the police service is just reflective of the rest of society. What were the, some of the key recommendations or key findings that, uh, that came out for you? Our original investigation was, was looking at one thing, but actually mushroomed into looking at concerns about culture because victims started coming forward, i.e. people who'd suffered, you know, um, bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, racism, misogyny, um, and a range of different forms of discrimination. And what we discovered was, you know, a lack of supervision. You know, this, this toxic culture existed and it actually festered, you know, over a number of years. It was like kind of left in a corner in the dark and, you know, it's like a, it's like a fungus that grew because there was no, you know, there was no light shining on it. The, the supervision wasn't adequate. And what we also noticed was that, you know, and let's be clear, you know, these were kind of um, colleagues, bullying colleagues. These were all police officers. And what we noticed was that when... When people were trying to kind of speak out or try to raise concerns, they weren't being heard. Now, I bet you that lands with you, you know, not being heard. You know, if you come from a kind of minority group, you know, and that that is something which which has been a common theme in the past. And we noticed that in our investigations here as well. So some of the kind of key recommendations that and I won't go into the graphic nature of, of the exchanges, but what I would say is if anybody is interested, they can go onto our website and they can they can find the report that we issued. Because for us, it was really important that it can't just be 
about accountability here, which is really important. And, you know, we, we worked through the police misconduct system. We found cases to answer for gross misconduct and misconduct. But it was also equally important to address the systemic issues that we noticed. And these largely focused around culture. So we used our legal powers to make 15 recommendations to the Met. And the things that I think would be worth kind of mentioning as part of this conversation, cool, would be we've recommended that the Met public com publicly commit to being an anti-racist organisation, an organisation that has zero tolerance for misogyny, an organisation that has zero tolerance for sexism, an organisation that has zero tolerance for harassment and any form of bullying. And we also recommended that where victims come forward, that they are actually supported through those internal investigations, that they're given updates and, you know, that their kind of status in that process is given the appropriate support. Now, okay, I'm talking about policing here and a, and a really difficult and extreme example, but you could probably transfer some of that stuff across, you know, to organisations and cultures which, you know, aren't where they need to be. And we've made these recommendations using our legal powers, so the Met will be legally obliged to provide a, a response to us. And what I would say about, you know, some of the things that I've highlighted there is that, you know, in order for any organisation to work, and if I just focus on policing for a second, it has to enjoy the trust and confidence of all its people, of all its people, no matter where they come from, or what protected characteristic they have, or what culture or background they come from. Because if they don't enjoy their trust and confidence from them, how can they represent and work with the diversity that exists in this country? You know, we're a diverse country. I think it's personally a beautiful thing, you know, that diversity. Um, and the statements, you know, an organisation makes kind of publicly about its positions on things that we, you know, we have zero tolerance for, for these sorts of things. We are anti-racist. It sends a really strong message. It sends a strong message to its people. And it sends a strong message, I think, to the culture and inclusion piece. But all these are critical building blocks, in my view, to get in the external work right. Policing obviously has a really difficult role, a really difficult job. You know that better than me, Cole, having been a kind of former officer. But at the minute, there's a, you know, there, there is a gap. There is a gap in trust and confidence with some of those kind of black, Asian and ethnically diverse communities across the country. I think you're so right. I'm reminded of a conversation that I had on this podcast with Andy Marsh, who's the... Uh, the CEO of the College of Police, and you'll know Andy uh, Sal, and he was saying pretty much what you're saying right now, that, uh, you know, the police service are in a very challenging position right now, where trust and confidence of the public is paramount. And there's been a number of issues or a number of events in, in, in the recent he uh, history that have created some challenges for the police service to regain that trust. Uh, Moving aside from the police service, because I want to look at this wider in the wider context around leadership and, and some of the things that you've said really have stuck a, a struck a note with me. Uh, one of those is around this whole issue of building trust and confidence 
across your organization, within your organization. And I always believe that if you want a vibrant, healthy culture where everybody feels heard, seen, appreciated for who they are and their voices to be heard from the experiences from which they come from, um, you need to have this foundation of trust. Without that foundation of trust, your communication is not going to be effective. Any managing, any change management will not be truly effective. Uh, and consequently, your performance will always be affected as an organization. So, so many organizations are so performance and target driven. And, uh, you know, sometimes the, the way to persuade organizations that they need to change their culture is to say, focus on the bottom line. What is it? What are the pinch points that are affecting your bottom line, your performance, your KPIs? It is partly that your staff aren't as happy as they could be and uh, happy staff or productive staff. How would you go about creating a culture of trust? What do organizations, what do leaders need to do to create more trust in their organization, do you think? That's an easy question, isn't it, Cool. <laughs> <laughs> trust, I think... Um... I think it's a really interesting one. I think if I'd offer a, a personal reflection, having worked across a range of different bodies in my career, and where, and I think what I would say, when it works well, what has been my experience? I think it's when, when the senior leadership gets it, when they actually understand what the key issues are. And I think, I think trust flows down then. I think... I think then it kind of flows down and it flows back up. But we, we, we live in a really kind of, you and I might be of the same age, but I won't, I won't probe you on that. But we, we've seen a lot of generational change in the workplace, haven't we? And the generation that works now has different expectations, more expectations of what their leadership will deliver, you know, being aligned to values. And I think to build trust, it's not what you say, it's what you do. And that sounds like a, like a really, really kind of simplistic way of saying it. I get it. I think it feeds into something that you said earlier on uh, about an organisation truly being anti-racist. So this is where I'm coming from. You know, straight after George Floyd, straight after Stephen Lawrence, straight after Sarah Everard, organisations were, and leaders within organisations were standing up and and, 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 and and making comments and speeches around uh uh, having a commitment to challenge misogyny or to challenge racism. But then after a while, that voice dies down because something else comes along. Uh, and the true essence of what they'd said was, did they do it? Has the organisation changed in any way, shape or form? Uh, so it's always actions that people look to rather than the rhetoric uh, that is often uh, um, um, expressed in the heat of the moment. So those leaders that are truly human-centered leaders, truly inclusive leaders, are the leaders that are anti-racist, anti-misogyny, and, and, and practice this, this, this one word, anti, in front of all of these uh, sort of uh, areas of bias. I think it's spot on. I think it's living. it's living those values as well. Because everybody can make the statement, but then as a leader, what, you know, what, how do you how do you live that in the workplace? How do how do you demonstrate those principles, which you know are principles of, you know, key core principles of equality, diversity, and uh, inclusion? Inclusion is the key word there. You've got to be seen to be doing something about it because you know 
all the horrific stuff that happened with George Floyd's murder, Black Lives Matter protests, brought these issues which were always there, kind of crashing into the workplace. Because they'd always existed, but, you know, it was never part of the workplace conversation unless you were a really kind of progressive and switched on organisation. So how are organisations dealing with this stuff now? Are they just putting up posts when is the anniversary of George Floyd's murder? You know, are they, are they engaging in tokenism? Are they engaging in performative actions which are just there to kind of put the sheen on things which are were seen to be part of the conversation? You know, what does the EDI calendar say this month? Oh, we, we, we must send out an email about it. Or, or are they, what are they actually doing? A, a good test is going to an organisation and looking at what their senior management structure looks like. Now, I can safely say that you're a South Asian male. I'm a South Asian male. Now, I work in London and I'm lucky enough to be a director in my organisation. And I have to tell you, like I'm, in, I'm into the third year of working in my role. And when I got to London, I thought, wow, it's going to be really diverse. You know, it's going to be really diverse. I'm going to be kind of meeting all shades and backgrounds in the job that I do. And London is a beautifully diverse city. And I'm lucky enough to meet all these wonderful people from different cultures, different backgrounds. But when I get to, you know, the director level and I have those interactions, well, not only am I like the most senior person of colour in the room, a lot of the time, in fact, most of the time, I'm the only one there. And then you look around and you think, well, how can that be right? It's this is a very, very uh, a powerful insight, actually. Because if we're talking about you being one of the very, very few, very senior uh, black or Asian people that you come across in London, probably the most diverse place in the whole of the United Kingdom, then it sort of challenges this this concept that many organizations have where they are chasing demographic diversity in the sense that they are chasing target-driven recruitment of protected characteristics into their organization. And I wrote an article about this uh, not too long ago. Now, I'll put my hands up and say I was a proponent of that back in the 90s uh, when I was vice chair of the National Black Police Association. I remember sitting down with home secretaries and saying, you know, police services need to have targets for recruitment, retention and progression of uh, black and Asian officers. Uh, but what actually happened was that most police forces and most organisations only focus in on the recruitment element. So they recruit a percentage. They want to recruit a percentage of people from uh, ethnic minority backgrounds into their organisations. But what happens to the, the retention and the progression element of it? Retention for me is exactly what we're talking about right now. We need to create cultures where people feel heard, seen, valued and appreciated. And then they stay in those organisations and operate and perform in those organisations very well. And we need to work on the progression element so that we can have more Sal Nassims in across London and across senior positions in the whole of the United Kingdom, across all industries. So for me, this is a gap. This is a big gap. Two big gaps. One is around the culture. And, you know, you've picked up on that with the canteen culture report that you've produced. And that won't just be in the Metropolitan Police. That will re be replicated 
if we were to have our hands on our hearts, that would be replicated across so many organisations. And that is down to leaders, executive leaders, really challenging that and saying, what kind of a culture, what kind of an organisation do I want to have? What are the values of our organisation and how do I live those values? Uh, and the second part is, how do I now look to the talent in this organisation that is that is from a protected characteristic or minority background? How can I get hold of that talent and, and create the aspirations and give them the skill sets to reach senior levels? Because only that way can we start changing culture for real, because that's when you get cognitive diversity. You move away from the groupthink and you move away from echo chambers, which are the cyclical sort of uh, experiences that most organisations are going through. That's why we're still talking about canteen culture 30 years before we first started talking about canteen culture when I was a young uh, uh, cop back in the 1980s. So I think it just feeds in nicely. All the stuff that you said feeds in so nicely into A, why canteen culture exists, B, how to reshape it, C, the responsibility of leaders, and B, reshape our thinking when it comes to diversity and inclusion because we're stuck in this rhetoric that it's all about recruitment and it's not. Well, you made so many great points, none of which I disagree with, cool. There, there's, there's, I'm not going to criticise any organisation that's trying to improve their diversity because I, I, I think you just have to support the intention that they're trying to make things better. But I think it's what they don't know. And you made a critical point there because you can improve diversity. But then when you get a lot of people from different cultures and backgrounds come into an organisation and the culture's not right, well, they will just go. You will not keep those people. So a really important component of bringing in people who um, have that cognitive diversity as making sure that the culture actually is one that embraces difference because a lot of organizations just are not getting it. They, they, they do not get that fundamental point. And then when you get that diversity, it's not about kind of back, back slapping, saying, look, look how good we are. We've got 15% of our staff come from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background, what grade are they? You know, what grade is the majority of your ethnically diverse staff sat at in your organisation? What are you doing to help progression of these groups, of these individuals that come from minoritised groups who have different challenges, who have faced different structural issues to progress? Because if you want to become you know, a diverse organisation, it's going to take work. It's going to take work because you cannot just apply the same principles and the same way of doing things as you always have because it's never worked. That's why you've got organisations which are largely white and largely male um, as they are. Now, targets have their place because I've noticed that targets have been placed on boards and the corporate structure and suddenly boards are becoming more ethnically diverse because they've had to because some targets have been um, imposed corporately. But if you're looking at organisations, I mean, I can only reflect, you know, my organisation, IOPC, and we're doing, you know, a load of stuff about putting stuff in place to help progression. You know, what, what, can, what can you do? Practical things, you know, mentoring, specific workshops, additional, you know, um, additional support, which is tailored um, and the knowledge that candidates who do come from, you know, different backgrounds um, 
need different levels of support. Not because of ability, it's got nothing to do with ability whatsoever. But I mean, I can only speak from personal experience that I've, I've moved many times in my career and I've still got the scars on the top of my head from banging my head against glass ceilings when it was clear. Didn't matter how good I was, didn't matter how well I smashed the job, I was never gonna get that promotion because I don't drink, I'm not white, I don't, I don't do the things and speak about the things and fit into the cliques that existed, which meant that it had to just be my work that sang for me. And in those organisations, that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that my work, you know, was to that standard. And, I, you know, the, you know, my work merited the opportunity. So I, I, I was looking for a home. I felt kind of homeless, you know, and until I kind of joined my current organisation, which I joined at a much lower grade. And I've been blessed enough to have had two promotions in the space of around eight years. And that has been off the back of, you know, a lot of hard work, but, you know, here it's a meritocracy, but that isn't the case in a lot of organisations, or what I would say, actually, most organisations from my experience, but I'm a middle-aged bloke, having kind of had like 20 plus years experience, and maybe there's a naive part of me that thinks, well, maybe it's, it's a bit better for people that are coming through now, but doing some of the other work that I am doing at the minute, I don't think that's the case. I think there's still significant challenges. I think there'll always be these challenges of one shape or another, bearing in mind that all organisations uh, involve human beings and we're complex, complex uh, creatures, aren't we? And, um, you know, I very often have spoken to people who want to eradicate bias. Well, we will never eradicate bias because as human beings, it's part of our fundamental nature to have bias. But I think it's about where that bias turns into prejudice, turns into discrimination. Uh, and that is what we need to challenge. And, and that can only be done if we have a professional environment in which we work, where values sit at the very, very heart of our culture. So for me, this whole conversation has been about healthy cultures. It came from a report that you published only yesterday. I'm so pleased because it's been an ad hoc conversation, but such an important conversation, Sal. I really, really appreciate you being here. I think we could have many more conversations around so many different factors of human-centered leadership, and we may well do that going into the future. But for today, thank you so much for being a part of this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kyle. It's been great to have, to be on your show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.